Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod, or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. In Scotland, we have to empower people. We will not succeed without the buy-in of the people and the citizens. Governments can't do this alone. It's too big. There's no point having campaigns on the radio to say, come on, everyone cycle, if it's not safe. People will not do that. I will not go with my kids on a busy road to get anywhere. That is just the truth. Frankly, if you don't bring everybody along with you, it's not going to be possible to achieve it. So that social buy-in is needed. Hearing the likes of Jeff Bezos pledge a really small fraction of his wealth to secure and sustainability, he made that speech less than an hour's drive away from the Amazon warehouse where his workers were sleeping in tents outside. If we recognise that climate change is a global challenge, a just transition within our territories should not mean spillover effects that prevent other countries from achieving their just transition. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Many thanks indeed for coming today. I um, know many of you will have been on the march and hope you didn't get too wet. I can see some of you taking full advantage of the warm temperature in here and starting to dry off uh, coats and, uh, and, and boots. So um, I'm really glad to see so many of you here. I, I woke up with a heavy heart this morning when I heard the rain thumping down on the windows and wondered how many of you would, would come. So it's an absolute pleasure to see you, and particularly after the, the couple of years we've had with COVID. So many thanks indeed. And for those streaming from home, welcome to. Uh, a wise decision when the Glaswegian weather takes a turn for the worse. And I just also want to begin with an introduction to Local Zero. So Local Zero is a podcast that was born about a year ago now. And if Dave, my producer, just to the right here, keeps me on track, I think we've now released our 30th episode. And we've had, over this past week, almost 2,000 listens, which has been brilliant to to have this during COP. And and the pod was really born out of... um, born out of frustration a little bit on a personal level and a professional level about trying to understand what each of us can do at a local level, that's from an individual perspective, from a household perspective, but also as a community to tackle 
climate change. And I must say, the amount of conversations I've had from folk when these episodes have been released that have been able to help start to pull these pieces of the puzzle in and give people a clearer sense of what they can do. So I just want to say a big thank you to, to all of you who've already listened to the pod and, and supported us, and also those of you who've interacted, and especially to our guests who've made the time to, uh, to speak to us. I'd also like to thank uh, co-hosts uh, Fraser Stewart here on the right. He'll be your uh, compare from the floor. Uh, he'll be keeping you uh, in check and making sure that your questions are answered. And also, sadly, uh, Becky Ford, um, who actually isn't here. Many of you will know Becky from Strathclyde. Um, she's actually on a bike ride at the moment with uh, folk from Scottish Power um, and uh, the hashtag moving for climate now. So she'll be absolutely sodden, I'm sure, and getting, getting toasty, hopefully in a hotel room somewhere. So today, today is all about the just transition, and it's about local action to deliver a just transition in Scotland and beyond. So we want to bring the broad and complex concept of a just transition right down to your level. So that's what it means for us as citizens, as households, as families, what it means for us in the workplace, and what it means for us within the community. So what might a just transition mean for each of us, and what should we be doing to deliver it? And of course, in the context of COP26, which I'm so proud that Glasgow is hosting, a real once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. We'd also like to understand more about how a just transition in Scotland fits within the broader international context. So, without further ado, I'd like to introduce to you uh, our esteemed panel, and, and many thanks indeed for, for making the time. I know how busy all of you will have been during COP26. So, in no particular uh, order, in fact, we'll, we'll start from, from my left. So, we have uh, Miriam Brett, who is Director of Research and Advocacy at the Commonwealth Think Tank. We have Jim Ski, uh, Professor Jim Ski, who is a professor at the Centre for Environmental Policy at Imperial College, also co-chair of Working Group 3 for the IPCC, and is chair of the Scottish Government's Just Transition Commission. We've also got Alison Stewart, so co-founder and director of Aberdeen Climate Action. We're also joined, I'm very glad to say we're joined by Minister of State, uh, Richard Lockhead, who's Minister for Just Transition, Employment and Fair Work at Scottish Government. Uh, we also have Katie Gallagher-Swan, Policy Coordinator, the UN Conference on Trade and Development and the Global Development Policy Centre, which I believe are doing a lot of work around the Green New Deal, which we'll hopefully hear more about. And uh, last but by no means least, Scott Matheson, who is Director of Network Planning and Regulation at Scottish Power Energy Networks. So I'm absolutely delighted to, to have you here. So as we've kind of run from left to right, why don't we start with Scott and come back the, the other way, um, just wanted um, a very quick kind of introduction to your engagement with the issue of just transition in your respective roles um, and some of the, the issues that you find most pertinent. So I've, I've given you two minutes each because we're on a tight schedule, um, but yes, just, just to kind of set the scene would be, be really helpful and then we'll, we'll move through the panel. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Matt. Um, daunting prospect to, to kick off with an esteemed panel on, on my right-hand side, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. So. Um, we see ourselves in the, so I work in the networks business, uh, not involved in the generation uh, side of the business, but we are very much the, the internet of things that will make um, climate action actually delivered ultimately, and um, people's ambitions within their local communities to transform their heat systems or realise a transformation in their transport systems happens via the electricity network that we run. And it's, it's an old network and it's developing, it needs significant investment. And over the last um, 18 to 24 months, we have been engaged very deeply with communities and many stakeholders, many diverse stakeholders as well, 
We've had 16,000 separate stakeholder engagements in the production of a plan which will see some investment in our distribution networks of about £3 billion over the next five-year period. And that also um, took place after uh, agreeing a transmission um, programme where we had the same programme of effort and work going on to support Scottish Government's ambitions in terms of trans continued transformation of our energy system through increased renewables that we see in the wall on the right-hand side. I think that one of the things that I would, I would note is that certainly in the networks business, the idea of community power is not a new one. It needs to be well coordinated and, and Alison and just the preamble had made a, a really powerful comment round about the need for structure and a framework to ensure that you know, no one is left behind. And that's clear where we are today was the Glasgow and, and Clyde Power um, Company that provided energy within a very small foot, footprint of Glasgow once upon a time, uh, albeit coal-based. Uh, it was a community-led power production facility. Uh, just in George Square, down around the corner, there are still legacy cables from that power, power company. So one of the things that we need to do is make sure that we connect communities and connect diverse stakeholders through the engineering that we do in our network to make sure that this is an effective cost effective as well transition to ensure that those who are least advantaged actually can participate in electrification of transport and heat. Um, equally we have a responsibility to innovate the way that we operate the grid and I see a revolution ahead in terms of how we engineer the distribution network in satisfying our customers needs. So I'm very interested in the discussion today and to listen to uh, peers and again more voices that will help inform the investment plans that we're putting forward. Thank, thank you. you very much, Scott. Okay, so if we maybe go into Katie, please. Sure, thank you very much, Matt, and thank you for having me here today. Um, so I think, you know, we're, we're here to talk about a local just transition, but there are different tiers and different levels of considering what a just transition is. And in fact, my role is focused on achieving a just transition at the global level, um, recognising that the world is impacted and, and, and riven with severe inequalities, um, and that in fact the current approach to decarbonising the global economy may in fact uh, leave the majority of the world behind, may in fact leave them without energy access. So in, in my role, we think about what is not only a way to make sure that doesn't happen, but to actually transform global economic governance such that every nation and community has what they need to thrive. Um, I'll probably get a chance to speak a wee bit more on that, so I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Okay, many thanks. Uh, Richard, please. Okay, two minutes. Uh, thank you for the invitation to come along today. Um, I'm Richard Lockhead, so I'm the Minister for Just Transition. I'm Scotland's first Minister for Just Transition uh, following the uh, re-election of the, the Scottish Government in May. And, you know, the Just Transition is embedded in our climate change legislation in Scotland. And I have to say that uh, throughout COP, I've been unbelievably busy uh, doing several events a day because of the enormous interest in what's happening in Scotland, uh, primarily from my context to do with the just transition, but also wider uh, net zero targets and policies. Uh, so it's unbelievably exciting here in terms of how other countries are very, very keen to explore how to go through a just transition. Uh, they are aware that Scotland's trying this as well. And of course, we set up our Just Transition Commission in Scotland, the chair of whom is sitting close to me. Uh, and uh, Jim and his colleagues produced a report and we've accepted recommendations. So the final point I'll just make in my two minutes is that um, 
Clearly, I am the Just Transition Minister and also Fair Work and Employment, and that also has got a synergy because we, as we've just heard, as has been looked at globally in Scotland, we want to use the economic transformation and society transformation we're going to have to go through as a, a window of opportunity to tackle embedded inequalities, fix things, make society better, create a well-being economy. So it's a big thing, and I'll stop there. Okay, many thanks. Um, Alison, if we could go to you, please. Hello guys. Um, so I'm talking from a quite a local perspective of the northeast of Scotland, um, which obviously is a, an oil and gas producing region. Um, and when we talk about just transition in, in Scotland, that is the kind of main area that's going to be impacted when we move away. And we have to move away very rapidly from the production use of fossil fuels. So when, when you, we always hear about just transition in the context of, um, of, the, of the northeast of Scotland, it's always in the context of oil and gas companies. And there's obviously reasons for that, but what we have to be aware of is that there are people that live and work in North East of Scotland, and we need to be looking at those people and the communities, and not just about oil and gas companies, but ensuring the voice of the people that live there is taken into account. And when we talk about a just transition, it has to be a holistic, managed transition, which just means that it's not oil and gas into energy or renewables. That's very, very limiting. But it's talking about the whole of the society change, as we just heard from Richard. The whole fact of the matter is that we need to be looking at about what the vision for our future is and working back from that vision. And that is embedding, as you're saying, more just, a socially just society, a better society. So that doesn't just involve an energy transition. It involves a whole society transition. And when you're talking about that, you need to involve the communities. And as yet, there hasn't been sufficient involvement. So that is what my organisation and what we have created, North East Scotland Climate Action Network, tries to do, is going to try to do. And we've re reached out for COP and had community events and questionnaires and school competitions to ask the people, what do you want your community to look like by 2030? Because only by having a positive vision that we can all work towards that I think a just transition is possible. Co-creation is necessary for buy-in. If people want the future, they will work for that future. But we have to be very clear that when, we, when we're actually looking at a just transition, then we're looking about how we can ensure the, um, the com continued development in a positive manner of a region and not just an industry. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Alison. Uh, Jim, please. Yeah, OK. Th I'll just make a few, few remarks building off the Just Transition Commission report, which Richard's already mentioned. And uh, what the ministers asked us to do was produce realistic and practical recommendations and we're also we're not supposed to question you know how ambitious the net zero target should be 2045 net zero was actually uh, taken as a given so I think the Commission was set up really well I mean there were 12 people on it from very different communities trade unions environmental NGOs business a, a, a modest scattering of academics in, in, in the in the mix mix as well and it was really encouraging that people from different parts of society, by getting together and listening to each other, could actually arrive at a consensus, because it, you couldn't have taken that for granted right, right at the, the beginning. So, like Richard, uh, I think we emphasised you know, the opportunities that can come from the transition to net zero, but we're also very cognizant of the risks, because uh, uh, the, the transition will involve significant changes to the way that people work and the way that the people live, and it's about making sure that that takes uh, place in a very fair way. 
So just say, so why do you do just transition? I will say there's two ways of doing it. One is principles and one is pragmatism. And the principle side of it is because I think it probably reflects the kind of country that Scotland wants to be, doing it in a fair and equitable way. But it's also very pragmatic because, frankly, if you don't bring everybody along with you, it's not going to be possible to achieve it. So that social buy-in is needed. So I think that combination of principles and pragmatism is really quite central to it. Okay, many thanks, Jim. Miriam, please. Thank you so much for, for having me here. It's really brilliant to, to be here. As mentioned, I work for a think tank called Commonwealth, and what we do is look at ownership strategies for a democratic and sustainable economy. And what I mean by ownership strategies is questioning quite macro-level institutions and structures, looking at, at its core at who owns the economy and in whose interest does it run, and looking at how we can shift from an, an economic and financial system that is rooted in extraction um, and inequalities towards one that is grounded in, in justice and sustainability and democracy. And so we focus on core thematic areas and those range from everything from rewiring finance to stewarding land and nature. And I wear a few other hats as well. Um, I've recently joined the, the board of Green New Deal Rising, uh, which is an incredible movement for um, a just transition. And I'm a, a research fellow as well at the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, which I'm sure many of you have heard of here. They've done incredible work in Scotland um, looking at how we can shift away from narrow kind of economic metrics to measure our economy to something much more comprehensive and holistic. And a research fellow as well for the Democracy Collaborative. Um, they are a US-based organisation working on community wealth building strategies which I'm very pleased to say has, has um, recently taken, taken grip in Scotland in a very positive way and I look forward to seeing what happens there. Okay. Thank you Miriam. So before we get stuck into questions I'm actually going to just break very quickly to my co-host Fraser who's just over here who was on the stage in uh, George Square yesterday uh, and had some very um, important points to, to make with regards to just transition and the rest. Fraser the floor is yours for a minute if, if you'd like it. Do you, want, do, you want to, do you want to stand up, Fraser, so we can see you? Sure. So you'll have heard me on the podcast. You know my voice. You've met me before half the room anyway. Uh, but I'm Fraser. I work with Matt and with Becky and with a lot of other people at Strathclyde looking at this area, at the just transition, but not just in terms of making sure that nobody is left behind, in terms of making this, this sort of formative moment that we're at in human history work actively against poverty and inequality. So bringing the benefits of renewables, whether that's solar on your house or a whole industry manufacturing production into communities that desperately need some kind of additional boost or, or income. Or it might be joining up transport to make it not just something that makes you want to leave the car at home, but something that creates better connected communities everywhere. So that's the kind of work that I do. In the capacity today as the uh, nominated man of the people, I think that's my job title. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I will be fielding your questions to the panel and to Matt and uh, taking the, the questions from, from online as well. So if you do have any questions or if you have any requests or if something somebody says absolutely terrifies you or you need to get out, give me a tap on the shoulder and uh, we'll look after you. So yeah, so do bottle up those questions and keep them coming in on Slido whilst we're about to turn, turn to the panel. But we'll begin um, with some questions from us. So first and foremost... I wonder if the panel uh, wanted to kind of step up and, and answer, you know, what does a just transition look like mean to you? Jim, I'm looking at you here because you've done a lot of heavy lifting on this and maybe we might go to Richard. Uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, one of the is, is with my IPCC role, Probably. I have to think forward to the year 2100. And one of the nice things about doing just transition uh, was that you can think about the next three to five years and bring it all a little more closely. So, frankly, I haven't really thought about precisely what 2045 would, would look like, because we are going to need to respond to under uncertainties and, and new developments. The key thing about you know, just transition, when the International Labour Organization worked up the principles, there is no def strict definition of just transition. The two big elements of it were the outcomes that you're looking for, but also looking for the processes by which you move through it, you know, the way you're bringing people into the discussion so that everybody gets a sense of ownership. And I think that means that we can't know precisely you know, what 2045 is going to, going to look like. We need to feel our way around it through these conversations so that people actually own the kind of net zero picture that we get to. So I've got very expert in ducking people's questions when they ask them, and I, yeah. I think I've just done that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And expertly done there, Jim. Thank you. So, uh, Richard, maybe if we can come to you, and then we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. ask uh, the uh, rest of the panel. I'm always terrified of disagreeing with the chair of the commission, but you know I do have a vision for 2045, and clearly the first part of that is we have achieved our targets, and Scotland is no longer contributing towards uh, global warming. But as part of getting to there through the just transition that we have tackled inequalities, we live in a better society. Uh, there's more equality, and you know we've used it as an opportunity. You know, as part of the energy transition, I know this is a huge, complex area, and I don't have the answers, and probably no one's got the answers yet, to tackle fuel poverty and, and these kind of inequalities we have in our society. So a fairer society, a better society, a more equal society, and clearly a sustainable society that's made its contribution to, to achieving the world's um, net zero targets. Okay. Alison. So having had just done some consultation on the vision of 2030 of people within our communities, Actually, I have to almost disagree, but not quite, because I do believe that it's always a continual conversation. But there are main issues that we have to deal with. So talking about how we get there a bit, well, it needs to be, I think that power needs to be distributed, not just power in relation to energy that we use, but as in political power as well, decision-making power. So local, the huge thing that came out of our, of our consultations, well, it wasn't even consultations, just asking people what they wanted. They wanted localism. They wanted be able to make the decisions that mattered to them within the local community and see them put into practice. They wanted that power. The main things that we need to deal with are very obvious. It's local solutions to them that come from those people. So obviously we all want lovely warm housing, you know, that is sustainable with renewable energy. Um, we want really lovely green spaces that are connected and the land use dealt with in relation to transition with agriculture. We want um, to, to be able to have cycle paths that are safe and pretty with along green byways between communities and public transport which is accessible and cheap and, and actually connects communities not just radial into the city. So there's all these kind of things that people do want but what actually people want within their community will differ in relation to those aspects. So we very much have a vision in relation because we know what needs to be done but the actual details of that vision are something to be decided by the people. And it's very important, the process of getting there. So we have that kind of involvement and that co-creation. And we also need to take into account the fact of, of going back, planning back, so we have the training in, in, in place, so we have the people who are, are trained to do heat source pumps and everything beforehand. So I think that we're gonna get there, 
but if we get it the right way, then we can really have all the, the, the benefits brought in. And that means really talking to people and, and bringing them on board. So the point there about how, I, I'd certainly like to come on to. Katie, did you want to add a, another final point about what it looks like rather, before we get on to how we actually deliver? Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with most of what um, the panellists have said so far, you know, particularly on using climate action as an opportunity to tackle wider social justice issues, wider inequalities, whether that's between CEOs and workers, whether that's between people of different genders, whether that's between people of different races. But there's also an inequality between what is ostensibly called the global north and the global south, advanced economies and low-income countries. Many low-income countries do not have the same fiscal levers or industrial policy space that we are very privileged to have in wealthier countries. And I think that when we're considering a just transition, if we recognise that climate change is a global challenge, then we need to be having an integrated and globally coordinated consideration of that that can link the local to the global. And so a just transition within our territories should not mean spillover effects that prevent other countries from achieving their just transition. So that shows this the, the real crucial importance of that of, of addressing power imbalances at every level and finding opportunities to, to build solidarity and ensure just transitions across the world. Okay, thank you. And you raise a very important point about connecting global to local just transition and we certainly want to cover that and we'll, we'll come back to that. I might just ask Scott here what in terms of uh, just transition in the context of industry and in the context of a, of a company, do you uh, share the same views as, as, as your uh, panellists or, or are, you, are you having to look at this in a slightly different way when, when planning for business? So um, I guess I'll answer this actually from, from the heart and with a passion for the business that I'm part of and that I'm privileged to run. You know, ultimately we, we benefit from international capital which moved around the world. However, we still see ourselves as a public service and the teams that I operate and run, when the weather is uh, inclement, the wind is blowing and the network's damaged, those are the guys that are heading outside. What we want to see is that we get the opportunity to serve the communities better as we head towards a just transition. You know, again, I, I operate a network that's covered from Dumfries up to rural Fife. Uh, our colleagues in the north cover the, 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 the highlands. We can create jobs in local communities. I need people in Stranraer as much as I need people in Glasgow. So we can create good, high-quality jobs within local communities close to the energy network that they are part of and have responsibility for. And, they, and again, being engaged close to your customers is absolutely part of what being a networks business is. I kind of would push back on Professor Skay's sort of um, let's let's try and find our feet. I think we need a vision of where we want to be by 2045. What does the energy system look like? And then what is the opportunity that that creates to promote a just transition, to increase the diversity within the workforce that we have, whether whether that's reflecting the communities that we serve uh, or indeed gender diversity within, within the community as well. We need that framework to engineer solutions and to create opportunities that creates jobs in the next five years my business will need to replace 700 of uh, an ageing uh, demographic within the workforce. That's a tremendous opportunity to change the balance of that business. But we will also need to recruit 500 new staff over and above that 
So nearly 1,200 staff into the business in a five-year period through training schools that will be based in Cumbernauld, that will support colleges in Dumfries and Galloway, and will support colleges in Forth as well, thus creating a multiplier effect within the communities that we serve. There's a huge opportunity in these businesses to be realised. You know, again, it's, it's probably digging into the past. At one point in time, um, Scotland, the National Engineering Laboratory in East Kilbride, was developing the patent for those wind turbines on that wall. We lost that intellectual capital to Europe and Scandinavian countries, companies like ABB were able to capitalise on the opportunity that created and create jobs. I think on the, on the transition towards the transformation of our heat and transport systems, what I want to see is that we don't lose that opportunity within this country this time around. An, an extremely important point, you know, IP intellectual property and is keeping that is, is, is you know, part of the essence of creating uh, a new economy. Miriam, I, I wanted to come to you now and uh, not just the point about you know, what does a just transition look like, but we've heard a bit more from the panel there about what a vision for this looks like, how we can create that, but also kind of how we can deliver on that vision. Yeah, so I mean I think firstly it's useful to take a step back and ask where we are at the moment and I think one thing that is imperative as part of that process is to ensure that we never see climate environmental breakdown as a siloed issue or as something on the side that, that is fundamentally hardwired into the current way in which our economy and our financial system operates. And that is rooted in, in deep concentrations of, of power and wealth. So that, is, that system is, what, is one and the same. And that's, that's the starting point for how we need to move forward with this and tackle that together. Because the causes and distributional consequences of climate and environmental breakdown disproportionately harm those that are least responsible for it. And that's true at a UK level, we can see the scale and difference of emissions. That's through globally, that's through between states. Um, and we see that those yeah, that are least equipped to deal with this, that are least responsible for this, are, are at the forefront of, of climate and environmental breakdown and are, and are shouldering the cost of it. And, and the UK and Scotland as high historic emitters and um, has, has enhanced onus to rapidly decarbonise, but as Katie mentioned, to do so in a way that is just, not just for here, but globally as well, and build a reparative approach. And I think one thing that should be a key takeaway message from this conference is the voices of those folk at the, front, at the forefront of climate breakdown saying that a two degrees target is a death sentence for them. That should resonate throughout the world to recognise that that is the severity of what we are dealing with here. And that's the starting point with where we should, where we should build this. And it's about fundamentally rewiring the economy to reconstruct it rooted in justice and equity and sustainability and democracy. And as Alison was saying as well, who is in the room as part of that matters. It's about co-producing a new economy with trade unions, with, with fossil fuel workers and communities. I'm from the Shetland Islands, we're, a, we're an oil community ensuring that, yes, we operate within the limits of a safe future and we can safeguard a safe future for everyone, but how we do that really matters. Who is in the room and who is involved in that process really matters. And tapping into the kind of different tiers of, of change that needs to happen too. The fossil fuel era has um, been dominated for, for many people by extraction um, and by concentration of, of power. And with the Just Transition, we have a real opportunity here to, to imagine a completely new system for energy, from nurturing new infrastructures around democratic management, around sustainability, around shared prosperity. And that means operating at every single tier 
of, of governance. So at local level, it's about everything from community stakes and renewable energy projects. It's about good green jobs being created locally. It's about land reform at a national level. It's about looking at the creation of new um, uh, institutions like uh, national mission-oriented national investment banks and the role that they can play in, in scaling green infrastructures and industries of the future. It's about creating the likes of a social wealth fund for renewables and at an international level it's about rewiring the economy and finance and building a reparative approach. It needs to be multi-leveled and it needs to be a, a systemic overhaul and we need to start the groundwork for that now because nobody's done enough yet. Thanks. Thank you Miriam and you hit the nail on the head there and I think you're starting to, to touch into parts there that the other panellists have mentioned. So I'm a hardwired pragmatist that when I hear rewiring economy and society, I, I get simultaneously excited and then nervous about how we're going to actually do that. So COP26 is here. People are having these discussions at, a, at an international level. But similarly, many of us in this room are having these discussions about our own communities and regions. So how do we do that? How do we start to deliver this, not just at a local and regional level, but also how should they be looking about doing this over at the SEC now at an international level? Because I was on the climate march yesterday and I, I was notable that so many people mentioned climate justice as, as what they wanted. I, I, I fear that everybody had a different view of that and that meant different things depending on which part of the world you were located. So a big question, does anybody want to, to run at it? Can I finish on the vision and the how? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> the last one, just a, just a little bit. Yeah. Let them so have to have it. Have it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so just to say, I mean, one of the recommendations of the Just Transition Commission was that there should be sectoral plans developed for each sector with a rationale that if people don't kind of understand where they're going, then they don't have that certainty for the future. The, the thing is, for in different sectors of the economy, we are actually, I think, at very different stages. The first just transition plan will be for energy. And there, I actually think we understand the issues quite well, actually, relatively speaking, how you make that transition from oil and gas to other sectors. There is another specific mention of a just transition plan on land and agriculture. And there, I think, we're in much tougher territory because for the, the Committee on Climate Change has recommended that so much of Scottish land be converted from agriculture to woodland. Now, that sounds unjust to so many of the farmers we've talked to. That's the place where I think you need through the discussions and to understand and you, you, your vision and the way you go about it are going to have to develop in parallel with each other. Otherwise, otherwise you're not going to get there. And then you asked another question about the link. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm mindful that at COP26, you know, these, yeah. these are the issues that we're having to understand how to deliver it. So I, I see there is a big distinction between the kind of discussions we're maybe having at, at the level of Scottish government or, or, or a more devolved level um, versus what's happening when you, you've got five, six, you know, different countries in a room all presenting their different vision. So, um, and with being involved with the IPCC, Jim, you, you have this sort of, uh, unique position where you're seeing things from a kind of Scottish perspective and an international perspective. So, so how do we square that, that difficult yeah. circle? And, and, the, and the way I kind of put it, when I'm doing IPCC, my head is in the clouds, and when I do Just Transition, my feet's on the ground. And you know, it's a, just a very <laughs> different kind of, kind of perspective on it, because the justice debates that take place internationally, you know, at the level of UNFCCC, are done in things like common but differentiated responsibilities. The degree to which developed countries step up and provide the financing that you, you has been part of the commitment. 
and it, to tell you the truth, it doesn't connect very well because it's very macro and kind of high level. And all the just and transition initiatives, if you look at them around the world, they're not in economies the size of the United States or China or Germany. They're all kind of regional or small countries. So you go to Ruhr, Upper, Sil Ruhr, Upper Silesia, Galicia in Spain, the Ohio Valley in the US, and places like Scotland. And that's the way that just transition is being thought about. And I think the new injection, I think that would be helpful for just transition in Scotland is to think about what, if any, are the consequences you know, in the wider world of the steps that you might take. I mean, nobody in another part of the world uh, should feel offended if people have put in psychopaths and, and uh, you know, thought about well-being as a priority. But there might be other areas that touch on international trade where there are potential implications that you, that you might want to think about. Okay. And I, what I, I might just come to Katie, because I know obviously being working you know, with, with the, the UN or part of the UN and uh, focusing on a global Green New Deal, this must have been at the forefront of your thinking. How, how do we deliver a just transition for here, but also one that's compatible for there? Yeah, it's a big question. Um, what Professor Scale was saying there about common but differentiated responsibility is perhaps a starting point for that. This principle of common but differentiated responsibility recognises, firstly, we have a common problem. We're facing global climate change, but there is differentiated responsibility. This crisis doesn't have equal contribution from different regions and different countries. Some countries, primarily the advanced economies, have made their wealth out of carbon-intensive industrialization and colonialism, and that means that there is a responsibility on advanced economies to pull their weight and make sure that we can afford a global transition. Now, the number $100 billion is, is what is, is part of the CBDR, Common but Differentiated Responsibility, this climate financing, was a commitment that was supposed to be met in 2020 and is yet to be met. $100 billion, when we compare that to the $17 trillion that was released into the global economy last year in response to the pandemic, you realise this isn't, this, this isn't because they can't afford it, it's because it's a choice to not invest in a global transition. You know, and I think that as we move out of the pandemic's economic impacts, um, as much as the pandemic continues to rage around the country, around the world, there will be a move to try and bring in more austerity. And austerity is the biggest threat to achieving a just transition globally, because what that will mean is that we will not put the investment up that is necessary to get us across the line and make sure we keep warming below 1.5. Currently, the most recent um, estimations say that with existing pledges, I'm actually not sure about the pledges that were made this week because there were some big pledges made this week, but prior to COP, the week before COP, we were on track for a 2.7 degrees future. That is a catastrophe for the majority of the world. That also will be a catastrophe for some parts of Scotland. We can't pretend that that isn't going to mean you know, flooding and huge parts of Scotland being uninhabitable. So I think that this concept of common but differentiated responsibility is the root of the equity question when it comes to COP and when it comes to just transition. And this isn't just interregionally. It's also about wealth. The average British person as much as the UK has in fact you know, reduced its emissions, is still three times higher as an emitter than the average Indian person and 54 times higher than the average Malawian person. You know, but 
that isn't equally spread. The wealthiest in the UK are the highest emitters. As much as Prince Charles might like to think that he is a climate leader, he has a more than a thousand times the yearly emissions than the poorest person in the UK. So this is also a question about wealth distribution. Katie, on that, and, and that the pod is local zero, and I'm just going to add a couple of questions before we break to the audience. So that the pod is local zero, and that the essence of the pod is very much about local action to deliver on a, a, you know, a just transition or, or net zero. So you know, to the panel there, what can citizens do? What can each of us do in this room? What should we be prioritising to deliver on a just transition? Miriam? Yeah, firstly, I mean, I think there, there's a real focus on shifting consumption patterns, which troubles me. For all the reasons that Katie's just outlined there, actually, that, that um, the causes and distributional consequences of this are, are massive and we can't consume our way out of it. So changing consumption patterns, great, part of the picture, but we need a systems change approach to it. And I, one of the things I was particularly troubled about over COP was hearing Biden speak about the, the need for a market-led approach. Now, the market has a, has a part in this, but the notion that we haven't given a market-led approach uh, a chance and that it has really severely failed to move at the scale and pace necessary to combat what is an unlivable planet. That's what we're, we're facing. It's, it's farcical. And the second thing, and I will move on to what we can do, I promise, um, in a moment. And the second kind of key concern I had with COP, and there's been a lot of incredible stuff at COP as well, but was hearing, and again, this is tapping on to what Katie is saying about, about the role of, of wealth in this, Hearing the likes of Jeff Bezos pledge a really small fraction of his wealth to secure and sustainability, he made that speech. And, th and this, this, for me, hammers home why this needs to be part of a just transition and not just net zero. He made that speech less than an hour's drive away from the warehouse, the Amazon warehouse, where his workers were sleeping in tents outside and where government had to intervene to stop that from happening. And we cannot rely on the current approach. We cannot rely on that to secure a safe future for everyone. And it needs to be, for me, and, and, and at a local, local level, at every level, it needs to be about connecting struggles. So it's about connecting working class people together. And we've seen that with the... Fraser's raising his hand there, good stuff, Fraser. Um, and we've seen that with the role of trade unions in, in the, the climate justice movement throughout COP as well. It's about connecting working class people together. It's about connecting struggles of indigenous people, of climate justice campaigners, of, of young folk. Look at what young people are achieving just now, of land justice campaigners. And it's about seeing this as one common fight. I think it's about bringing folk together who are from very different perspectives and have have lead very different lives under a common banner to shift towards a future that is rooted in climate justice and economic justice as one. And it's about putting pressure on decision makers to ensure that they are making choices that lead to that. Okay, thank you. Alison, I think we, we may come, come to you with your work with, in Aberdeen. Obviously, very local focus, very strong emphasis on big changes afoot for net zero. So I wanted to get your view and then maybe Richard we could come to see what government's perspective is on what we should each be doing. Thank you. My view in relation to the internet, like how we link it into like across globe globally or? No, no. I, I, the, the focus on, so um, with your work in, in Aberdeen, mm. uh, trying to understand what you're expecting individuals, communities, SMEs in the local area, what, what should we each be looking to do to deliver on a just transition? Well, I do believe 
that we all can make, obviously, our own decisions, but we need to be facil facilitated by leadership from those in power. So that we need direct kind of leadership from, from local and central government that will facilitate those choices. So that's, you know, if people want, say for instance, they say, okay, I will use my bike to cycle to, to work, to school and everything. They will not do that if it's not safe. And the only way that we're going to be able to do that is if we have segregated safe bike parts, for instance, that takes infrastructure change. There needs to be the grassroots level doing and, and pushing for that, but there also needs to be a response from, from the government, from the people that are responsible for putting infrastructure to, to actually put, put it in place. That's obvious. So as individuals, we can use our power as citizens to vote, to write, to, to pressure that, but it was also on those that should be leading to lead and give us a good plan um, to get us there. Because there's no point having campaigns on the radio to say, come on, everyone cycle, if it's not safe. People will not do that. I will not go with my kids on a busy road to get anywhere. It's just, that is just the truth. So we cannot expect and keep on pushing it back onto people to make those changes. They will only make those changes if they're facilitated in doing that. So I think they have to be very careful about that. In relation to how we do things, we definitely need to ask the people who are living in those areas, who are working in those areas, where they want things, what they want, what will work for them. Um, we, we pretty much know what we need to do. We do. Okay. It's, it's not rocket science. It's out there. We just need to do it. Let's get the plan. Let's get the people on board. Let's get everyone involved in the process and just get on with it. Okay, many thanks. So I'm going to maybe look to, to Richard here for a response in terms of, obviously, Scottish Government is starting to develop their Just Transition plan, and a big part of that will be the extent to which you know, individual action is going to have to be required. And, and this is something that UK Government are tackling very much, big, big focus on what, what is or you know, is not uh, within the realm of personal choice. So from the Scottish Government perspective, what, what should each of us be, be looking to do to deliver on a Just Transition? I read a lot of history books and I hope COP, you know, gives us the result we want and clearly I don't think it's going to give us exactly the results we want, but I hope there's a big leap forward. History teachers are getting 200 countries in a room to agree to do something as radical as what we need them to do is quite challenging. Uh, and we know we've not succeeded in doing that throughout the 20th century or the 19th century, or 18th century, but particularly the 20th century, uh, where we couldn't get countries to work together to do what was right and they did wrong things. So. I hope there's huge progress with the you know, 120 countries here and the 200 countries in the UN. But the people have to take the lead and take the lead from the politicians in many ways. If the politicians are not going to do what they should be doing, then the people have to take over and show leadership and then drag the politicians with them. I've spoken to quite a lot of delegations and people and companies who are they're very happy. Um, Ready to take over? Maybe <laughs> I think they support the people taking over. Uh, so some people have said from other countries that they think their populations are going to go ahead of their, 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 their politicians and their leadership. And, you know, that is the answer. So in Scotland, we have to empower our people. And, you know, I'm very keen that we have a, a bottom-up approach to this and we empower grassroots levels and organisations and Alison's clearly involved in that in the northeast of Scotland and others are doing that across other communities as well because that to me is the way forward. We will not succeed without the buy-in of the people and the citizens and the citizens have to be part of this and drive it forward. Governments can't do this alone, it's too big. So, you know, that grassroots action is something we are supporting at the moment and we'll have to support a lot more uh, in the future. People 
you know, ultimately will have to take decisions. They want to play their role in, in saving the planet and saving their own family's future. Thank you, Richard. And in the spirit of that, we will break to you for questions in a moment. I can see Jim is prodding me with his pen uh, in a, from, so, from the corner. So, Jim, would you like to just have the last word on that and then we'll, we'll take questions? Yeah, yeah just to say, I mean, the easy answer to you to the question you put is just to say have a more plant-based diet and fly less. That's the easy bit. But the, you know, that, that is not, not the way, I think, to get your argument over by telling people what to eat and how to live their lives, uh, quite frankly. For the, for the first time, IPCC is going to have a new chapter on consumption behaviour in it which we will have great fun trying to get through all the governments at the approval session, mm -hmm. but that will be an interesting one. But I think you know, the message coming out of it is you know, the future depends on an interaction between infrastructure, technology, and the choices that people actually can make. And actually one of the most important actions is actually just to get involved. And we made on the Just Transition Commission a lot of recommendations about local empowerment and the role of communities. And being you know, civically engaged has actually got to be a big part of it as well, I, th I think, to move it forward. Can Thank I, you very much. Sorry, can I just oh, course, butt yeah, in a yeah, little yeah. bit? Um, I do believe that, speaking with the minister right beside me, that there should be legal obligations on local authorities and they should be given exactly, told exactly what they need to be doing. And we need to have time limits on this and we need actual action now and once there are the obligations and the legal obligations on local authorities to act, then we have to put the obligations in for them to, to basically co-create as well. And I think that would make the change. Without that push and, and the direction, I think very much the direction, then, then there will not be uh, action throughout Scotland at the same rate. Well, thank you very much. We, we will pause there. We'll start to take questions. I know we have some on Slido, so uh, I'm guessing they're, they're lined up. But I, yeah, I wonder whether we might firstly take a couple from Slido, okay? Slido first? I, I don't mind. If, uh, let's see a show of hands. Has anybody got questions? Got a few. All right, okay, we've I got a what, few. What we'll, do, what we'll do then, Matt, is I've got a couple from Slido that'll be good. One or two have actually been touched on in the last okay. answers. But I think if we take a question from each side and then we'll take a question from I Slido. I think that's good. So I, if, if my eyes don't deceive me, is that Roddy Yar at the back? I'm getting really good at like, knowing people from face masks that I've only ever seen on Zoom. So, Roddy, welcome. Why don't we take Roddy then, because yeah. he's, he's right, right at the back. Thank you. Um, good evening. Great panel discussion. Does the panel thing think that the Scottish Government should ensure that every local community, and UK Government for that matter, should have its own climate solutions audit carried out to create the capacity and pipeline for investment and change that is socially just. Thank you very much, Roddy. Is it worth us taking the other question as well on this side? Did you? Okay. So my question is... So, sorry, before you begin, could, could we just have name, name and affiliation as well, please, if, if you don't mind? Uh, yes, my name's Anya Kaufman, and I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Strathclyde. Um, and my question is, what are the most significant challenges to increasing democratic participation in a just transition? Right, two big questions. So, um, the first from Roddy, local community audits to identify the best potential for opportunities. Have we got any takers? Scott, do you want to have a go? Yeah, I think there's a lot of merit in it. Um, I think Alison touched on the need for direction as well to be given to local authority. You know, one of the big challenges for us as we move forward, if we want to move forward agilely and at pace, is to make sure that we have clear integration points on infrastructure development. Uh, one of the pivotal areas that will be important in that will be the local authorities, but also the, the national government. 
um, even just from a planning and consenting perspective as well. So I think taking stock of where we are within each of those local authority footprints, we've got 26 of them in our own patch alone uh, in, the, in the central belt of Scotland is, is critical. Um, I think that would also enable better integration between local authorities and clearer planning frameworks for development of what we need to do and, and how, we, how we respond to that. So I would uh, be very, very supportive of that. I think that also comes with the recognition that you know, we need to remember that our local authorities are, are our means of local engagement. They should, their councils should reflect uh, us as society and people, so we need to make sure that that is in fact the case. And we need to make sure that they're funded and supported appropriately uh, if we want them to achieve that, that type of uh, engagement. Okay, thank you, Scott. So any other um, input from the panel there on the value and, uh, and potential for local community audits? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's a really, a really interesting initiative, and I think it's one thing that could be really uh, complemented by community wealth building, which I'd mentioned before is is something that's um, being scaled in in Scotland. We've um, got a community wealth building act coming down the line, which is brilliant. I'm really excited to see the details of it, um, and we've got a, a pioneering project, a, a rollout of a community wealth building strategy in North Ayrshire, which is very extensive um, and and a. a a really, a really brilliant model for what we should look to do. I would say that as uh, someone on the expert panel, but um, it, is, it is good, I promise. And what community wealth building does is look to transfer physical and financial assets as part of a local economic systems change approach. Um, and I think it's something that can go hand in hand with and touch upon the, the need for increased participation at a local level as well, um, looking at how you co-produce community wealth building strategies um, and the benefits that that has both in terms of reducing inequality and in terms of decarbonising local economies too um, and that touches upon several areas that can be looking at um, scaling um, local finance strategies like community banks and mutuals that could be looking at procurement so um, safeguarding um, climate and workers rights through social licensing for example that's looking at how we integrate a fair work approach there is no climate justice without a fair work agenda and, it, and it's looking at land ownership and, and use as well um, and all of these areas I think are really complementary to both um, rapidly decarbonising local economies um, but also increasing participation both in terms of actually co-producing and tailoring strategies that are rooted in um, local needs and crafted to, to address them, but, but also in terms of looking at the transfer of assets, something like community parks, for example. How are people involved in that? What are the consequences on air pollution? How are they serving the needs of those communities? Who owns that and who's involved in managing that? All of those questions, I think, are critical to, to decarbonising local economies. Okay, thank you very much. Alison, would you like to... Come in. Yeah. I do think it, it is really important that communities do that. They need to be helped to do that. But I think what I think is very important too is that we have regional place-based pans where we bring everybody into the table, SMEs, business, local authority, government agencies, people in. And we work and we work down and, and we work up and we bring it all together because it needs to be linked in. There needs to be this web. And without that, we're just going to have overlap. We're going to have missing spaces and we're going to have money going going where it shouldn't go and not be going where it should. So we need, we need a plan that everyone works towards. That's, I think that's really quite simple. But then every element has its own part, so at all levels. And I think I was, I was speaking, we had a, a stall at the Green Zone on Thursday, and I was speaking to this professor from LSE about, and he does about sustainable finance. 
you're saying, I'd like to talk to you about how we can link in the finance, not just the big businesses, but all the way through the, that area. And the only way we can do that is if you have a con if you have a conversation, the conduit, the plan to be able to do that. So you can then, if you had uh, the communities all having their plan and it feeding into central central kind of um, organisation or people, and then they could be like funneling the, the the finance in. And I think that is. Yeah. quite an interesting way of doing it. Very interesting, very complimentary to many of the net zero targets that we've obviously seen from different towns and cities. I just want to come on to the second point, which I think was, we've started to probably already touch upon, right, which was about how we make this process more democratic. And I, I'm looking at Richard and Jim here because, uh, and obviously I'll come, come to Katie as well in a moment, with regards to Scottish Government's plan. So there was a lot of interesting points made by the Just Transition Commission report about how we make this a more democratic process and Scottish Government I felt reading the report responded pretty warmly to many of those recommendations. Jim, Richard, would anybody like to reflect on that? We'll maybe come to Katie um, from, from a different perspective as well after. Thank you. Yeah, so if we want um, our citizens to, to lead the, the efforts um, then we have to make sure that everyone feels involved and part of the process. Um, you know, we've seen climate assemblies and we're, you know, there's all these kind of issues just now which have got huge potential to bring in, the, in their case, the people of Scotland to participate locally and take part in the democratic process. There are, of course, issues in that politics generally has probably never been so toxic, populist and polarised as what they are just now. And that could put a lot of people off, which I'm worried about, of getting involved in any participation or democratic process. So I think one of the themes we mentioned earlier on is very important, which is, and I hope COP26 taking place in Scotland shifts the dial on this, because it's happening here and it's in huge publicity, is that we have to you know, show people why we want to do this in the first place so they feel part of it and they support it and they get behind it. And it's not just politicians or NGOs, it's, it's the people. That issue we spoke about earlier, about explaining to people why this is important, how they'll benefit from it, is really an important big first stage. And then, you know, hopefully they'll feel confident to get involved in the process. Because otherwise, one political party will say black, another one will say white, and we end up in a, you know, as we've seen in recent weeks. Uh, so, you know, we have to perhaps make sure we get that message across first. Thank you, Richard. Jim, would you like to respond? Yeah, well, just to say, I think Miriam and Richard have said a lot of the things I'd come in on, because you mentioned the Community Wealth Fund and the North Ayrshire you know, experiment and the green participatory budgeting uh, that we mentioned. One thing I could mention, actually, is the Climate Assembly, with which we interacted uh, quite a lot during the process, you know, dropped in and participated. And what I find about quite remarkable about that is that people who weren't really sure about the climate issue at the start of the process, once they got engaged with it, really kind of got it in terms of you know, what the consequence of carrying on as we are at the moment, but also the possibilities that are in front of them. So I think continuing that kind of process, that spreading it out more widely is really important. Because I mentioned the principle and the pragmatism at the beginning. The pragmatism is that unless you get people engaged with the issue, they're not going to absolutely get behind it. And I think that's really, really important. Can I just make one example? Just one small example oh, yep. about the need to um, build consensus. Is, you know, I remember a few years ago we had a debate in Parliament about car parking levies for businesses and it became an almighty battle and highly politicised with political parties campaigning on it, against it, etc, etc. Put that into the context of what we're speaking about today <laughs> and everything's happening in COP26 and if that, that issue yeah. can cause 
civil war in Scottish politics of a levy on a business's car parking spaces. Just think of the issues we're speaking about and the measures we potentially or will need to take to, to tackle climate change in Scotland. So that's why it's so careful. We've got to carefully deal with this and manage it because you know, that's, that's, that's the reality. And before I come to you, Katie, I'm being nudged by my, my partner in crime over here, Fraser. So, Fraser, did you want to say something quickly? Well, it's actually nudging the question more in the, in the direction of Katie. It's part of the issue, and I think what you've just said, which is a good example, is actually there can be a bit of a, a lack of trust and authority, maybe a little bit on these things. There's a bit of a, um, a, bit of a rift in terms of uh, industrial relations as well. And when you're talking about a just transition, you're talking about fair work. Uh, you're talking about representation in that conversation. Do you think in terms of participation and representation, do we have an increased role for whether that's citizens' assemblies or trade unions? Is there, is there more prominence to be had there in the, in the bigger picture? Just to clarify, Anya, your question was also on energy democracy, mm. wasn't it? Like, not just democracy for climate policy, but specifically for energy? Or was that wrong? Uh, no, I didn't know I'll have a wee bash. I'm also slightly getting distracted by the tunes out the window. Um, <laughs> Uh, good tunes. Um, I think that this points to the mandate for these ambitious things, right? Like if we wait around for us to all have, you know, to have consensus in the Scottish Government on what should be taken, you know, we, we, we won't make, make our 2030, 2050 targets, but that is not a reason to roll back democracy, but to, to double down on democracy. We don't want an authoritarian climate agenda. We need to win the argument at the very local grassroots level and actually use the expertise of local people to be influencing and driving climate policy. And that connects to, you know, if we, we think about this in the frame of, you know, justice, and I wanted to speak a wee bit about energy justice because I misunderstood Anya's question, um, is, you know, you've got different levels of, of democracy on, on the question of of transition in energy, you know, you've got the access question, you know, and globally about 800 million people don't have access to, to electricity right now. You know, you've got the cost question, which influences the access. We know many people in, in this country can't afford to access the energy that they need. And um, we've got the ownership question, you know, who owns our energy and who owns our energy infrastructure? And is it driven by a public service motive or by a profit motive? And then you've lastly got the supply chains question, you know, our, is our energy system a source of multiplier positive effects where we can have you know, onshore manufacturing capacities that is going to create jobs, decent jobs, and, and, also, and that's obviously a very politically volatile question, but very important for politicians, not just in this country, but, but globally. And I think that this points to you know, this message of the global challenge and the interdependency that we have. If we frame the question of energy democracy as, you know, who's going to win the tech race and who's going to be the person who creates all of the wind turbines for the world. I'm sorry, but that means that you're withholding energy justice for other parts of the world. And so, you know, there, are, there is an architecture of trade and investment agreements which prevents some of the very necessary decisions we have to take if we're going to get there on time. Things like preferential local procurement, subsidies for renewable energy, regulating and decommissioning fossil fuels, which will impact um, private profits. And this comes to the... To the imbalance between the public sector and the private sector that we really need to tackle head on and see that as a massive barrier to this democratic mandate for ambitious climate action. You know, so instead of 
trade and investment and finance architecture, which is based around winning the tech race and being ahead of the game, you know, this winner takes all, we need to think instead of mutual prosperity and interdependence. I deal with this question all, all the time, but how do we, how do we meet, get to speak to people? I was talking about yesterday, I was talking to a guy that just done it in Manchester and community um, engagement, well, not engagement, I hate that, but involvement, going in and just looking, doing community climate assemblies. And we want to do that in, in Aberdeen too. I'm on the Aberdeen Net Zero delivery unit and myself and um, Tavis Pock, who used to be the acting director of the Centre of Energy Transition at, at the University of Aberdeen, would say we want that. We want there to be that aspect. But you're only going to get that if they trust the people who didn't talk to you. So it's about trust, and that's really difficult. So you need to be giving the message in a language people understand with the issues that they care about, with the people that they know and trust. Um, and I tell you, the person that actually does come up with a great idea of, of how we can involve everybody, <laughs> everyone is going to be want to know that person. It's, it's not there yet. And when we did a conference recently, we tried to get an awful lot of really good examples of, of uh, community involvement in local authority decision making, and we really couldn't find any. And, and so that is where we need the work. And that's what we need to be putting the research into. There is, there is that some out there, you know, the Future Generation Commission in Wales are doing some great work on that as well. But we really need to be thinking very heavily about how we do this because that is going to be the tricky bit, the practical elements of putting the policy like net zero nation into effect. Okay, thank you, Alison. Fraser, I'm assuming we've got questions from Slido. We've actually, we've covered the questions from Slido. Okay. We've touched on them in various forms and instantly... I see hands going right. up here, so well, we'll well, uh, okay. this side. I think we'll take one from each side and do it time again. Hi everyone, uh, I'm Vijay, uh, co-founder of a business called Cubots Energy, based in uh, Manchester and Glasgow. Obviously the just transition has many facets to it. One of the elements that uh, we, we are interested in is the difference between SMEs and large business in terms of how they buy energy and how they uh, adopt energy efficiency measures. If you see in the market at the moment, SMEs pay 30% higher energy costs compared to large businesses. And in the last one month, because of the wholesale market volatility, the people who have been affected are the SMEs who have now got to pay 22 pence and 25 pence instead of paying 15 pence per uh, unit. Um, so obviously, uh, we've been trying to do our bit using uh, different methods and we're trying to form energy saver clubs to bring SMEs groups together to do some um, energy buying directly from solar farms, wind farms, or make use of smart technology like battery storage, you know, kind of benefit the SMEs as a group and also work with some community finance companies as well to finance the energy efficiency measures. But if you see in the market, the biggest uh, barrier that we come up against is the current existing energy brokerage and the intermediary market because that market is currently based on adding commission for every unit of energy they sell. So obviously even a simple um, regulation saying that people should not charge based on commission based on selling more energy and making more money of, out of that instead have more fixed models or uh, transparent models, things like that would greatly help. Thank, Thank you. you very much. And we'll take the other question down on, on the front here. Hi, I'm Chrissy Scott. I'm from an organisation called Beyonder um, and also our new venture, Digiloop. I'm really curious, phenomenal panel session, thank you all so much. It's actually given me a fair bit of hope again um, that we can collectively and collegiately work towards this. How do we then support that culture shift that we need in Scotland to have that? How do we support a trickle up? Because as an organisation who's been championing this for nine plus years, 
we've yet to still be heard at the top. If we're doing this and we're looking at the social and environmental integration on both a macro and micro level through global and local, we've been doing this on the ground for nine plus years, but we still feel that there's a disparity in what's happening at the directorate level at ScotGov and then right down through our agencies. I'd be really keen to look at how do we create a sandbox where we can actually work collectively and collegiately to get through that and get through the policy challenges that are not agile enough yet and the frameworks that actually are then written in that hinder this work that we're all collectively engaged in. Chrissy, I'm going to push you. If you could just summarise briefly in one sentence because there was quite a lot packed into that. Yeah. So... The Wellbeing Alliance Scotland is a big part of that. We see that as a big conduit of how we bring all that together. But how do we ensure then, from an agency perspective, that that's actually going to be accountable? Scottish National Performance Framework has been in play for 13 plus years, but we still don't have that accountability yet at an agency level. How do we then make sure that our SMEs, who are the backbone of our economy coming up through that, can have that supported? Okay, I, I, thank you very much. Appreciate that, and thank you for, for the other question. So there's two questions, and if, if I can kind of try and summarise the, the two of them. The first is more about uh, the kind of justice in the context of industry. So you've got some big companies who are maybe wealthier and more able to afford, uh, the, the, you know, the, for example, the ravages of, of escalating energy prices and SMEs that are not maybe family-run. Uh, maybe non-for-profit. And the, and the other point was more about accountability at, at a kind of directorship level, whether that's in government or industry, and trying to lay those frameworks out in place that people are accountable for their actions. Um, and I think there's a lot of that in the, in the Scottish government's uh, framework um, uh, moving forward. So maybe on the first one, Scott, I'm kind of eyeing you up here uh, in the context of business and how you've seen this, uh, how justice within industry. So um, I guess... There's been a couple of comments about blind faith in the market, which, oddly enough, operating in the private sector, I wholeheartedly agree with. And, and I can see you know, very clear market failure if you look back to 2009 with the collapse of the banking sector, if you look more recently to what's going on with respect to wholesale gas prices and what's going on in the retail sector and, and uh, energy supply, which was related to the question that was asked, that's a problem. And I think actually, if you look at the model that we operate within the networks businesses, we are able to access international finance, but we are regulated. I don't, I don't determine my profit level. That's subject to 36 months of consultation. And if we don't like it, we have a right to appeal. If the investor doesn't like it, but at the end of that, that's the arbitration process done on behalf of the people who obtain and work on the public service. And I actually think that, that there, is, there has been a steady political philosophy that tries to move away from that and introduce competition everywhere, rather than one of the fundamental directions that they set out in the, regula in the regulator of GMO was where appropriate. And that word seems to have been lost and forgotten. Why does that matter? Well, it matters at the moment for the reasons that were touched on, and it's not just small to medium enterprise that are more exposed. So a large corporation with a large balance sheet will also have the resources that can hedge their energy power over longer periods of time. So they're less exposed to the market through the operation and the liquidity that they have within, within their corporation. Small to medium enterprise actually can pool their resource and reduce that exposure. And I, I guess that would be one of the ideas that uh, Regen are thinking about innovating, and that probably has resonance at the community level as well. And these ideas are not new. 
they were actually visited in the Victorian area in the form of the finance sector and called mutuals at that point in time where you had working class people who wanted to create clubs which became savings, which became banks that we'd all recognise in the high street now. So I think there are solutions through that as well. But you know, the minister made a really important point as society gets very polarised on these issues. You know, and I, I, I think we have to we have to work harder to try and speak together to find solutions. So, I think the form of regulation that we have in energy, in particular, has a wider role to play, rather than a lesser role. But that ain't the direction of travel that Ofgem are going down at the moment, nor nor government in, in Westminster, in particular. And I, I think that has to be challenged and, and rethought the way that we regulate, the objectives that are put on the regulator, the responsibility and their role within net zero needs to be more clearly set out. And I do feel quite passionately about that. And I'll just finish that it really, really does matter. The three million customers who are exposed in the market at the moment, they will carry to the rest of us. And it, the, the cost of transferring those customers will be concentrated on domestic customers for recovery. So thank you. And I, I just wanted to follow up there on the point, and I thought the question touched upon this neatly, was too often, I think, from the, the Just Transition narrative is about big business, what's going to change for industry, workers. What I don't hear much of are these small companies, sole traders, SMEs, family-run businesses. Is this something that um, you, any of you have dealt with through your research, policy work, or even uh, I'm looking at the Just Transition Commission and government here. It, has this been a topic you've grappled with, or is it virgin territory? Generally speaking, in terms of big picture to the just transition and net zero, the business community is unprepared and not awake in terms of what's happening. I don't know how much research has been, but what I have seen uh, is that we've got a lot of work to do to persuade small businesses, medium-sized businesses, that they have to start thinking about the consequences of their businesses and the opportunities for their businesses of uh, net zero and having their own just transition plans. And you know, one thing we're looking at is consulting on anyone who gets public money, part of the criteria, because we've already put new criteria in for fair work, part of other criteria may well be producing a just transition plan for their business. Proportionately, I mean, obviously, two-person businesses you know, might not have to do that, and we've not decided any of the detail yet. I'm just, we're just going to come out in principle. So the, I think that's my impression at the moment, is a lot of businesses are ill-prepared. And hopefully, again, COP, you know, especially taking place in Scotland, uh, will raise awareness hugely and get people thinking and businesses thinking. We've got a couple of points yet. Yeah, I think it was Jim first and then Miriam. Can we come to you and then we move on to the point about accountability? Thank you. Yeah, so, so just to say, I mean, the Just Transition Commission, I think we recognise the challenges of SMEs, but I don't think we grappled with it properly. To be quite blunt about that, we, you know, it, was, it, it, it was a difficult one. I mean, I think, you know, when you've got something like a climate emergency, emergency means you need to act quickly. And you cannot wait for long processes to come through. And it does raise some quite fundamental issues about the balance between markets and planning processes when, when you actually proceed. And I think the market does do very good things, like wholesale competition, wonderful thing, much more sceptical about retail competition. And, you know, the UK government and Ofgem were so frustrated, you know, having given customers the choice, most customers chose not to choose and just stuck with their existing supplier. 
And then the ones that did move recently got landed uh, you know, with suppliers who went into administration. And frankly, I think we could have just had a kind of a franchise market locally. The meters would have belonged to the local distribution company, so it would have been easier to roll out smart meters. Just everything could have been done more simply. And I think taking a more fundamental look at these things actually might be quite helpful. Okay, thank you, Jim. Miriam? Just on the on the point on the the energy crisis, we did some some research into this recently um, and found that obviously we have we have a privatised, relatively deregulated energy market just now. Um, and what we've seen is that wealth that was once held by the government is now predominantly in the hands of a handful of private companies and foreign foreign um, government owned owned firms as well. And there was just some figures in there that I found astounding. So the big six energy firms paid out um, the equivalent of 82% of their pre-tax profit and dividends over the past decade, 82%. So that's almost uh, 23 billion in dividends over the last 10 years. And overall, the effective tax rate of the big six has been 13% over the last decade. Um, so that's obviously well below the current statutory corporate tax rate of 19%, which is farcically low in the first place as well. So I really think there needs to be a much bigger conversation about the ownership structures of our energy companies and about what that is doing to our energy energy security strategy, but also how we steward a just transition. And the implications, the implications we've seen on um, workers with the recent fire and rehire by British, British Gas um, and the implications on um, consumer costs, which are unaffordable for so many um, and and the need to reimagine I think our, our entire approach and the ownership structures to to energy companies to to safeguard against um, the levels of, of fuel poverty that we're currently seeing so I think that I think the current energy crisis should be a wake-up call on, on so many levels as well you know the UK is almost uh, uniquely volatile to global energy shocks as well, um, in no small part because we have not put in place a longer term energy security strategy. The current energy crisis should be a real wake up call to question to question the road that we're on with regards to, to energy security and, and to how, how we see our strategy and, and how that feeds into our ability to, to lead a just transition. Thank you, Miriam. Okay, so we have the final question, and I can hear the clinkety-clink of what comes after this. Okay, so I don't want to be the, the, the person, and I'm sure the panel don't want to stand between you after a long day marching. So um, the point around frameworks for accountability, I think, is an important one, not just in industry, but also government and beyond. So what kind of frameworks should we be looking at to ensure that people are having to grapple with these difficult questions and that they are accountable to the broader um, objective of a just transition. Scott, do you want to? Yeah. Yeah, okay, thank you. Quite keen to pick up this theme because I guess it was at the heart of what I, I, I tried to set out that's a wee bit distinct about our business is there's a very, very clear framework for accountability. Given the national debt sitting about 2.3 trillion, I would hate for us to be absolutely paralysed by a debate purely on ownership. However, I do think that the framework for accountability and responsive corporate responsibility is the area to go at, and the regulatory structure round about that, the responsibility that companies are held to for the objectives that they, they want to achieve, that can also reflect the, how we comprise and set up the establishment of the boards and local engagement within those, those corporations. So I, I think it would be wrong to polarise this as about different owners, 
what is missing is the framework for it. We need to be able to get access to the kind of investment that moves around the globe. We need to be able to compete with other nations, as well as make sure that we're working with those nations effectively. That's the bottom line. The international money will go where they see uh, an appropriate and attractive market as well. And that's, that's a tough balance to strike. And to get that, it is, it's challenging. So we've got to make sure that we can still get that money into the country but we do, what we do with that money and how we make it work on behalf of our citizens has a very clear framework set round about, round about it. And, you know, again, I, think, I don't think we, we run at competition, which probably has that unfettered, free, uh, more of an unfettered framework. And actually, oddly enough, I, I guess I'm extolling the virtues of a regulator that I'm often <laughs> in a debate with uh, more often than not. Thank you, Scott. OK. Um, to the rest of the panel, please. If maybe final thoughts, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. I think if you're going to look at the accountability, you first have to look at what you're accountable for, and so that's ultimately the most important thing. Is there has to be not just targets there, but but also mechanisms to meet those targets. When we're looking at what it means to get to like 2045 here in Scotland at zero, then we need to be looking, really drilling that down with yet again plans um, that then identify the actors and bring those actors in and then they have you know you've got to set like you would in any business plan objectives with timelines and then you have to ensure they don't get done now you can do that in several different ways by having money and then withdrawing it back if it doesn't work or making it legal which I'm a I'm a lawyer I have to say so that's part of what I, I, I think is appropriate is that you need accountability without accountability you don't get action done and I think our democratic system doesn't really allow for much accountability at the moment and I definitely believe that is to be the case so I, I strongly believe that there needs to be accountability, but I think we have to take on board the fact that, going back to the SME issues, I have spoken to a lot of SMEs, and they really, really don't know what to do, and they haven't got enough information, and when they have had the information, like climate literacy training, they've been like, wow, it was really amazing. So A, I think we need to really get climate literacy training out of SMEs. I think we need to give them support to be able to change. For instance, even in relation to recycling, it costs so much money for them, it's, it's difficult. Like I've got friends that run SMEs that would want to do the right thing, but there's barriers for them to do that. So we need to understand the barriers. If you talk to, say, mechanics about electric cars, they're like, oh, that's all very well, but every single electric car has a different system. And we have to pay money to get trained in that system, and then they change it. And so they're, 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 not, they're not collaborative, they're competing, which then means that you have to go to the, the car manufacturing garages rather than the small local garages. So has that ever been brought up? and listen to. And that's what we need to do. We have, need to have conduits of conversation. You're saying about sandboards. There needs to be ways of that being done. And there needs to be incentives and money and, and education put behind that alongside. And that's the only way that we're going to be able to understand the issues and be able to create the plans to then have the accountability for. Thank you, Alison. We're quickly running out of time. So if anybody wants to, uh, maybe a couple of final points. Point. On the motor trade, that's something where we've got red lights flashing because electric cars have fewer moving parts and they don't need as much maintenance, full stop. And that is an issue that's going to need to be addressed. But what I was going to say on the accountability thing was I think the Scottish Government has done the right thing because, of course, they've re-established the Just Transition Commission <laughs> and asked it to scrutinise its performance and you know, moving towards all the Just Transition targets. And I think, it, you know, in general, 
having independent bodies that can provide that kind of scrutiny advice is a very important process. It's absolutely right that the decisions stay with the elected politicians, so there's no intention of making any grabs into that kind of area, but the, the having independent scrutiny, the way the UK Committee on Climate Change has acted you know, as well, I just think is a really useful uh, mechanism for government. Okay, thank you, Jim. We have time for one, one more point of view. I don't want to take away if somebody else wants to go. Um, well, it's, you know, it's dog, dog okay, eat dog I'll, on I'll this panel. You know, on this framework for accountability, I feel like we need to think about this more broader of our priorities. As it stands, Pretty Patel is happier to put climate activists in the jail than she is the financiers of coal. You know, we talk about, you know, India and, and China having to stop overseas coal financing. 87% of overseas coal financing comes from private financial giants like BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard. So when we're talking about reasserting public priorities, we're not saying there isn't a vital role for SMEs and for private sector actors. What we're saying, as Miriam pointed out, is that there are a few financial giants who dominate these sectors and have far too much control. So, and we look at the announcement from COP this week of uh, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, GFANS, which is a collection of 450 banks and private equity funds who promise to align their, um, their activities to net zero. I'm sorry, but the time for promises is over. Um, and so when we're thinking about a framework of accountability, I think we also need to think at that macro level, who is holding these, those people to, to account? Because there is no accountability at the moment. And those are the people who continue to finance and prevent it, prevent us from moving towards a, a just transition. Um, and I, I suppose as a, a healthy provocation to, to Scott, you know, I think that competition can be healthy. The problem is that we have monopolies and capital flows in and of themselves are not necessarily a positive thing if it prevents you know the the public uh, public sector from being able to take these decisions on these these massive unprecedented decisions on aligning our economic activities by 1.5 and i suppose i would just end by saying that you know we built these systems at one point we can redesign them and build them again Th thank you katie miriam's twisted my arm but promise <laughs> this is uh, that, you know, my festive cheer is already at a wane and it's only November. Um, so, yeah, yeah, very quick. I'll be please. very quick. I'll be very quick. And it definitely builds on what Kate is saying there. I think just in the role of finance, and, and this is important because the UK is a global financial hub, 60 biggest banks provided $3.8 trillion to fossil fuel firms since the Paris Agreement. Barclays alone has provided £4.1 billion to fossil fuels since January. And look at the insurance market as well. If we look at Lloyd's, for example, Lloyd's of London um, is estimated to have counted for 40% of, of global energy premium in, in 2018 alone. So this, this scale of this is absolutely massive. And as Katie said, the time for promises is over. We need regulation, we need intervention to actually pull this back, shift away fundamentally from an approach that is rooted in extraction and inequality to build democratic structures that are sustainable by design. Thank you, Miriam. And I would like you to join me in thanking the panel for an absolutely fascinating discussion. Thank you. So I can see the, 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 iron, the iron brew has been released. So it is it, it's freshly chilled. It's ready to drink. Before I, I release you, 
I just want to say a big thank you to the organisers of this. We've worked very closely with Stuart Matheson. Um, Stuart, thank you very much, and to Scottish Government, and also Visit Scotland, and of course the Lighthouse for, for having us today. I'd also really like to thank Fraser, uh, thank Dave, the producer, uh, and also thank Becky, who sadly can't be here today. But um, And also, I would love to thank you all for being here and making this such a wonderful occasion. So please do grab a drink, um, and we'll catch up there. Thank you. Produced by Bespoken Media.